Please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel according to Luke and the fifth chapter, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. As we continue to study about the wonderful works of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, to learn about his ministry in Galilee, his ministry in Galilee, the territory where he grew up, and yet an area that was often overlooked in terms of the perceived importance of it in Israel. Jesus, however, showed that he cared not only about the people in the land of Judea, but also about those in Galilee and really about those everywhere, including those who would come later and us here today. We want to read Luke Chapter 5, the first 11 verses, starting in verse 1, if you would follow along as I read. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. He sat down. And began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. We have a term for people who are instantly good at something that they have never done before. And that term is annoying. Just kidding. It's not annoying. What is it? It's beginner's luck. Beginner's luck. We recognize that sometimes people are able to do things that they have never done before just because, statistically speaking, sometimes they are going to do well, even if the majority of people are not. Or maybe there are those people that just kind of seem to be good at a little bit of everything, and that translates over into a new thing that they've never done before. Either way, we recognize that sometimes people do well at things that they have not done. Here is one such occasion, but this is not beginner's luck. In fact, it's not luck at all. It's not the product of some statistical chance. In fact, it was when Jesus decided to do this, instead a one out of one possibility. A 100% chance that when Jesus decided he was going to bring a load of fish into Simon Peter's nets, such that it filled up the nets and the boats and made them sink, That's what was going to happen because that's the kind of power and authority and knowledge that Jesus has. And it's this authority, this greatness, this power, this knowledge, this wisdom 
that exalts him above all people and makes him the kind of person who is worthy of being followed, even if you have to leave everything behind to do that. This is what happens in this account. Jesus has disciples who leave everything to follow after him, literally leaving behind even their entire livelihood and their family to follow after this one who is the Lord. Now, Jesus had had disciples and followers of various kinds before this account. And some men, possibly even including the ones who are described here, had already been with Jesus in Judea previously. They had followed his ministry in Galilee. They had been his disciples in some sense. Those who learned from him, who followed him around, or at least would go and and, uh, listen to his teaching on various occasions. But this is a watershed moment. They don't just from this point forward follow Jesus' teaching or just kind of keep up with what's going on in Jesus' ministry. They literally follow him. And, of course, they figuratively follow him as well. They become his followers. Three men are mentioned here, Simon and James and John, as well as one more who's described in the parallel passages, uh, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. And these see Jesus' great worth and value, his greatness that is his, and they say, this one is worth following, even if it costs us everything. And so we read the account this morning and consider what happened in this story about the fishermen who followed Jesus. The fishermen who followed Jesus. Now this starts out uh, innocently enough when in verses 1 through 3, Jesus asks Simon to use his boat. Jesus asks Simon to use his boat. And when we talk about Simon in this passage, it's clear once we get to verse 8 that he's talking about a certain Simon who we know later on to be known as Peter. Verse 8 calls him Simon Peter. And it is only here in this account and a couple of instances late in the book of Luke that he's referred to as Simon uh, as well as when he is named in Luke 6.14. For the rest of the time, he simply begins to be called Peter, and we can talk about why that is as we go along. But for now, just understand, Simon in this text is Simon Peter is Peter the Apostle. So the first thing that happens here is Jesus teaches the crowds near the sea. He teaches the crowds near the sea, and verse 1 says, It happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, Luke testifies that Jesus' message was not his own of a human origin. Rather, it is God's very word. And everyone wants to get close to Jesus. Everyone wants to be in proximity to him. And of course, there are various factors involved in this. Jesus was healing people. We just read in the previous chapter how he was, uh, he was healing people, verse 40, who, ha- who were sick with various diseases or those who were possessed by demons according to verse 41. And in fact, he was so popular in verse 42 that the crowds were searching for him. They're trying to keep him from leaving. So Jesus was a very popular figure because he's healing people or because his teaching was amazing. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And really, he's just become a huge celebrity. He's become very, very popular and very famous in Galilee. So he's standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, And he sees an opportunity. He sees an opportunity. Verse 2, he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. The boats were sitting there, 
And the fishermen were doing something. What were they doing? They were washing their nets. Now, what this indicates is that they probably just came in from doing this. They're still in cleanup mode from the night before. It's not even like there were hours in between when they went fishing and when they showed up. He looks over and they're just kind of tidying things up from a night, uh, a night of work, a futile night of work, as Peter tells us, but a night of work nonetheless. And seeing these two boats, innocent enough, uh, innocuous enough, doesn't seem like there's anything significant about that, is something that to Jesus presents itself as a great opportunity in multiple ways. Now the first one of these is indicated in verse 3 when he gets into one of the boats so that he can teach. So he gets into this boat and this boat belongs to Simon, Simon Peter. He is the one who wrote the book of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, this eventual preeminent one among the 12 apostles. He begins to see the Lord's greatness in this account. And for now, Jesus is just getting into his boat, and he wants to use it for something. And so what does he do? He asks him to put out a little way from the land. And when he did this, he sat down. It was customary to teach this way. This is how Jesus taught. We read about this back in chapter 4. After Jesus closed the book, uh, he sat down in verse 20 before he began to teach. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus sits down and begins to teach the people. And that's exactly what he does here. It says he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Now, why does he do it from the boat? Is this more comfortable for him? No. Does he just like the boat? No. He does this because he needs just a little bit of space so that he can actually teach the people. Jesus sees the answer to a difficulty. It's too easy for people to get close to him. Now, I know this may not seem like the obvious uh, thing to draw from this, but I do think it's worth a brief note on what Jesus was doing here and how this might apply in our own day. I wonder if Jesus were to do this today, what the reaction would be on social media. Have you thought about this? What would it be like if Jesus got into the boat? You would see things like, Look at this Jesus. Who does he think he is? Is he too good for people? He sneaks off in the middle of the night when people are trying to talk to him. He leaves town without healing everybody. And now he's going to put himself away from all the people so that they can't even come near him. They just want to hear him preach. They just want to touch him. They just want to be near Jesus. Is he too good for them? And of course, we know that Jesus didn't lack compassion because he didn't just stay in literal physical contact with the crowds at all time. He wasn't too good for them or too big for them. Unfortunately, we tend to speak this way about Christian speakers, authors who have become what we call celebrities. And we assume that they think of themselves as more important because they have a reserved seat up front to make sure that they get a seat or because someone helps them to be able to get back home at a reasonable hour after they speak at a conference. And we're very quick to pass judgment on people for such things. Now, these people are not Jesus, of course, but we do need to make sure that we understand that Jesus has a purpose here and that Jesus cares deeply, deeply about the people, and that's exactly why he does what he does, because he needs to make sure that he can teach and that he can hear the word of God. And so this is the point. This is what Jesus does and this is what he is after he wants to make sure that he can do what he has come to do well that's one purpose of getting into the boat but there's something else that's going on there's something else that's going on jesus wanted peter's boat to have a place from which to teach 
But he also wanted Peter's boat for another reason that no one else could have predicted. And so he finishes teaching, and he speaks to Peter with a second request. Only this time, he doesn't ask him. He tells him, we are going out into the deep water again. And so verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. In so doing, this is what happens next. Jesus leads Simon to witness a miracle. Jesus leads Simon to witness a miracle. He's done speaking to the crowd, but he has only begun to teach. And he has a powerful lesson to convey. What is that lesson? Well, it starts by telling him simply to go fishing again. He says, go fishing again. Put out in the deep water. And this is the singular command to Peter. Uh, the language of let down the nets has, uh, has the, it includes those who are with him as well. So Peter, steer the boat out. And then everybody who's here, put down your nets again. Why the deep water? Well, that's apparently where the fish are. Now, consider what Jesus is doing here. And frankly, if this was anyone else, this would be incredibly presumptuous. You're going to get on my boat and tell me who knows what I'm doing and runs this business where to take my boat. And you're going to tell me when to do it and how to do it. And you're going to tell my crew what to do. And I'm sure to the other people in the boat, it probably sounded like that. Who are you to tell us to do this? But Simon Peter views Jesus differently than he views anyone else. And rightly so. And so Simon answers him and says, Master, Master. An interesting word that Luke is the only one to use in the New Testament. Uh, it, it refers to someone who's in charge in some capacity, a leader, an overseer, sometimes a master. And it's used in place of the term for teacher or for rabbi in this case. Here, it denotes that concept, but with a degree of authority. And what Peter is doing is saying, I may be in charge of this boat, and it may belong to me, but right now, you are the crew chief. Right now, you are the one that I'm trusting to call the shots. So he addresses Jesus from two angles, and he humbles himself and says, Teacher, Master, I respect you. You are the one in charge, but you need to know this. We worked hard all night and caught nothing. Notice the conditions of the working here. We went all night. We spent the whole night, which would have been the optimum time to catch the fish. We worked hard. We just got back from this situation. We were just here. We were just in the deep water. Jesus, we caught nothing. There's nothing out there. And he says, but that doesn't matter. It matters, but it doesn't. Because he says, I will do as you say and let down the nets. In this moment, Simon trusts Jesus' word against his own judgment. He trusts Jesus' word against his own judgment. Literally, the language here is upon your word or on the basis of your word. When he says, I will do what you say, it is on the basis of your word, or as some translations render it, at your word. Simply, Jesus, because you said so, I am going to do this. And this is not a resentful, well, if you say so. This is, Jesus, you're telling me what to do. There's no reason otherwise why I would do this. This doesn't make any sense to me at all, except that this instruction is coming from you. Simon is an experienced fisherman. He owns the boat. He knows what's going on. And Peter sees this as a fool's errand. Nothing is going to happen. 
And he's thinking, we just got back. We've been out there all night. Nothing has come to pass. There's only one reason he would do this, and it's because Jesus says so. And I would submit to you that there are some things, or there ought to be some things in your life that are like this. That there are things that you do only because Jesus said so. There are things that you would never do that you would never come up with on your own. There are things that they don't make sense to the world. There's no temporal benefit or punishment for them. You won't necessarily face any earthly consequences if you don't do them or any earthly rewards. And they might even be things that otherwise, if the Bible didn't say so, you would think are a bad idea. And yet, because Jesus said so, you do them. And I don't mean that Jesus is speaking to you in some way outside of the Bible and Jesus is telling you these things. I'm simply saying all that Jesus commanded, all that God has said in his word, we do what we do on the basis of that, even if it doesn't make sense to our minds. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding. This is the same thing. We take Jesus at his word. We do what he says. We trust his word and his judgment over against our own. And that's exactly what Simon Peter did. Upon your word, I will do this. And lo and behold, verses 6 and 7, the fishermen take in a haul of fish. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, a great multitude, a load of fish. How many fish? So many that their nets begin to break. Forget about needing to clean the nets. They've got bigger problems here. A good problem to have, but a problem nonetheless. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat. They've got one boat out there. Now the other boat that was by the lake is, or on, the, on the shore is coming to help them. And they came, and what do they do? They fill both of the boats with the fish from one net, from one catch that just happened and even that was not enough because the boats start sinking. Think about what a massive quantity of fish it would take to do something like this. And remember, Peter and his crew had just come in from the same place and nothing was happening. So why did Jesus do this? Well, he was showing Peter that he could provide for him. That certainly was implied. But he's after something bigger than that. And Peter gets it. And so what happens as a result of this is this. Jesus causes Simon to fall in amazement. Jesus causes Simon to fall in amazement. And this is shown in verses 8 through 10. And we will work through this a little bit backwards so that we can know what's going on. Verse 10, uh, verse 9, his companions were amazed because of the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. These were those who would later, of course, become Jesus' disciples as well. Uh, James and John and Simon Peter would be the three closest disciples to Jesus, the ones that he took up with him onto the Mount of Transfiguration, the ones he took with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, the ones who were the closest to him. So these three here are just beginning their journey with Jesus. They are Simon's companions. And in addition to them, specifically the focus is upon Peter in verse 9. Amazement has seized him. He is stunned. He is stunned. They can't believe this. They look at this and they say, this just doesn't happen. Nobody does this. Fish do not come in like this after it hasn't happened before. And they don't come in in this type of quantity. But also, it isn't that this just doesn't happen. 
It's also that this doesn't just happen. This doesn't just happen. It's not an accident or a coincidence. This isn't just the product of circumstances. Someone has made this happen, and Simon knows it. That someone is Jesus. And at this point, Simon has to realize something. Jesus doesn't just have good instincts. Jesus isn't just experiencing beginner's luck. Go over there and you'll catch some fish. This is more than that. This isn't even a normal catch that might take place where if you got lucky, so to speak, then it would be like this. He doesn't just get lucky. There is literally, Peter knows, no way that this would have happened unless Jesus did something that exceeds the capacity of any normal human being. And at the heart that leads him to understand this is what Luke describes in verse 8. And we'll call it Simon's confession. Simon's confession. When Simon Peter saw this, not just when he saw this, but because he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet. Literally his knees, but the point is he falls down before him. And Simon demonstrates here not only fear, as we'll see, but humility. Humility. As so often happens in the scriptures, when someone is brought before a holy God, when they're brought into God's presence, they fall down like a dead man. And Peter does this here. He knows that he's in the presence of someone who is vastly superior to him. Not just by a difference of degree, but someone who is in an entirely different category. And so Jesus is, in one sense, like Peter in that they're both human. But Peter recognizes that in some very important way, Jesus is not like Peter at all. And that's what comes out of his mouth. Three key elements of his statement. First thing is he tells him to go away. Get away from me. Go away. And this is emphatic. Go. Get far away from me. Not because you're annoying me or the other reasons why people tell someone to get out of there. So just leave me alone. You know, you've never done this before. You and your beginner's luck. Just get out of my face. It's not like that. He's not disappointed or mad at Jesus. He is afraid. He is scared. Look at what he says about him. He calls him Lord. He's not just master anymore. There's an even greater title being placed upon him. Now, we see this word and we may instantly start to think that he is referring to him by the divine title. And it is true that the divine title is Lord. That Jesus is referred to as Lord, not just in the sense of master, but as we go throughout the New Testament and we learn more and more who he is, we see that he is actually Lord God. That he is the Lord of all. Here, it's not quite certain that that's the full extent of what Peter is saying. In fact, he still is coming to grips with exactly who Jesus is. And it isn't until chapter 9 that he confesses him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nonetheless, he certainly begins to build toward a right and full confession of Jesus with this statement. He is his master. He is Lord. And he is greater and in authority over Peter at this moment. And in contrast to who Jesus is, Peter shows that he understands who he is. He says, get away from me for I am a sinful man. No doubt made even more clear by contrast to Jesus. In light of Jesus' perfection and greatness, this is now shining like a spotlight on Peter, on his moral imperfection. He knows what Jesus has done, and he knows more than ever just how fully great Jesus is. So why is he afraid? 
because he knows something about himself and he knows something about Jesus and he doesn't like how those two things go together. And so he says, go away from me. Go away from me. Um, Isn't this our default response when we think about Christ in light of our sin? Maybe in some ways it, it should be. And we think, you know, I'm just not worthy of you. Uh, go away from me, Jesus, because I am in trouble. I don't deserve you. Uh, you need to not be around because if you're around and I'm sinful and you're, you are who you say you are and who you've shown yourself to be, then I'm in big trouble and I don't want that. But Jesus already knows this. Here's the thing. When we come to terms with our sin and we see the greatness of Christ, our first instinct might be there needs to be a separation between us and I need to run away and there's a certain element in which that's right and good to do because there's a recognition there of the difference between us and Jesus but there's another side of the equation and it's one that Peter is about to learn and it's one that we all need to take into account when we recognize who Jesus is and recognize our sinfulness and we see it as Jesus calls Simon to follow him. We see it as Jesus calls Simon to follow him. Uh, What would you expect Jesus to do in this situation? Well, Simon Peter had an idea. And I think it's the same idea that many of us have when we think about who Jesus is. We have sinned. God is angry at me. I don't want to be around him anymore. There's bad things coming. But there is more to the story than that. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear do not fear now as always that's easy for you to say don't be afraid of the guy that just filled up this net and that net so that the boats are sinking don't be afraid of that guy you're sinful and i'm sinful and you're telling me not to be afraid well yes that's true peter needed to be corrected and it is a comfort to him simon had qualms about coming to jesus he looked at himself he said i'm a sinful man all he could see was his own unworthiness but he was wrong to only think this way Because Jesus says, don't fear. Worthiness is not all there is to Jesus. This response to Peter is not the same response that he has to everyone. Rather, this is the response Jesus has to people who humble themselves and fear him. This is the response that Jesus has to people who truly recognize who they are before him. Now, Jesus is eager to provide comfort he is eager to be able to tell people don't fear don't be afraid but for whom does he provide comfort it is only those who humble themselves in this way it's only those who don't stubbornly try to hold on to the things that make them sinful before him it's only the people who actually look at jesus and say i don't deserve to be near you the people who think that they do deserve to be near jesus are the people who he rejects and the people who recognize that they don't deserve anything to do with him are the ones that he comforts and embraces don't fear he says this is a gracious response merely to allow peter to remain in his presence is a gracious response and to not grant peter's wish to go away but he takes it one step further and he says i want you to stay with me from now on you'll be catching men and so he calls peter to stay with him 
He calls Peter to follow after him. And this is an example of Jesus' mercy. To those then who think that Jesus is not that special, they don't get his company. But to those who do, those who recognize that they're unworthy of him, he grants them his abiding favor and he dwells with them. And so he calls Peter. He comforts him and says, don't fear. And then he gives him a job. He calls him. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. And when he says catching men, this is a different word than what we saw before in verse 9 for a catch of fish, which they have taken. Uh, This is a word that refers to someone who is captured. And in many cases, when this is used in earlier writings, it refers to people who are spared uh, in conquest. When, when, uh, When someone conquers someone, they spare that person and take them captive rather than putting them to death. And, of course, the obvious connection here is you're going to take something and bring it in, and it's going to start to belong to someone else. But whereas fish were brought in to be consumed, Peter and then the others who would follow after him, whom he would catch, would be captured in order to be saved. To be caught by Jesus or one of his fishers of men is not to face the end. Rather, it is to have a new beginning. And so Peter is told... You are going to be an evangelist. You're going to start taking the message of the gospel. It's not just me who's going to talk about myself anymore. It's you and these others who are going to start to bring men out of their danger into a relationship with me. This is what you're going to do. You're going to catch men. You're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to preach Christ. You're going to preach the gospel. Now, concerning this evangelism, there's a message embedded in this that Peter should take to heart. And we should, too, if we're ever involved in telling other people about Jesus. Because he compares the concept of evangelism to fishing. He calls it catching men. And notice what happened in this story with regard to Peter and the catch. What was happening when Peter was out catching these fish or trying to do so overnight? Nothing came in. What did Peter perceive to be the likelihood that they would bring in a catch of fish when he went out there? Zero. Peter says, it's not happening. There are no fish. And what did Jesus prove? That there were all the fish in the world if Jesus decided that there would be so. What this shows us, by way of analogy, is that when it seems the most unlikely that any catch would come from our efforts, Jesus is still able to bring in whatever haul he wants. Jesus is sovereign over the fish, and he's sovereign over the hearts of men. And so we're not to judge the likely effectiveness of gospel preaching on the basis of anything that the world would think makes it likely that people would respond. This is the mistake that we make when we're thinking about how to do evangelism or how to do outreach or programs or how to tailor the message or how to package the message. We just think, well, if this wouldn't work in natural terms to gain a certain percent of responses, then we shouldn't do it. There's no point. Now, there's wisdom to be had in saying, where are many people? Where are people who are willing to actually listen and not just reject me? And to to use your judgment because you can only be one place at once when it comes to preaching the gospel. But the catch doesn't depend upon what we look at and say, you know, that's a good place. That's That's a group of people who I think are going to respond. That is fertile territory for fishing. It's not the way to think about it. The catch depends ultimately only upon Jesus so arranging it and Peter no doubt would be able to keep this in mind as he went along and to see that uh, 
he can catch anybody at any time. That the most unlikely person to believe the gospel could come to believe it. And the most seeming great circumstances to preach the gospel may result in nothing. At the end of the day, it is all about who Jesus brings in. And so Jesus looks at Peter and says, you want me to go away? I've got a better idea. How about instead of me leaving you, how about you leave your fishing business? And how about you do something else? How about you fish for men? And Peter and his friends aren't going to turn that down, even if, as it turns out, there is quite the opportunity cost involved. Verse 11, Simon and his partners respond. When they had brought their boats to land, what did they do? They left everything. They left everything. What did they leave? They left their business. They left their comfort. They, uh, they left their property. They even left their father, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We read in the parallel account that uh, their father was in the boat with them. James would become a leader in the church early on, uh, before he was ultimately executed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. John would become a leader in the church as well, one of Jesus' closest disciples. In fact, in some ways, the closest disciple, ultimately writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. These men served Christ faithfully throughout Jesus' time on earth, and then afterward, they became fishers of men. Why did they do this? Well, for one, because Jesus told them to, and they followed his command. But also, why were they willing to leave everything and follow him? Because Jesus was worthy of it. He was worthy of being followed. And it was worth whatever the cost was to obey such a one as this, to follow such a one as this, to believe him and to follow him. What would they have to give up? What would they have to leave behind? What would they miss? Who would they miss? In comparison to what they would gain, even if they would miss those things, and even if there would be sadness and loss, at the end of the day, in comparison, it didn't matter enough to stop them. And so it is for anyone who hears the call to follow Jesus today. Not to follow him literally, like around the lake or around Galilee. We can't do that. He's not physically present here. But to follow him in spirit, to give your life to him, to say, this one is worthy of being followed. He's worthy of being trusted at his word, even when I don't understand why. Even when I would otherwise have doubts about the wisdom of such instructions. Even when it's self-denial. Even when it causes ridicule of me by the world. To put our faith in him, as Simon Peter did, and to make our lives not about ourselves, but about trusting and pleasing our Savior and our Redeemer. I want you to note as we come to the end of the narrative, uh, a few things to take away from the story that are worth dwelling on for a little while. Uh, I want you to see, first of all, in this, Jesus' sovereign ability and orchestration of providential events. How Jesus orchestrates providential events. The two boats are there. Jesus intends to call Peter. These boats are there not just because they happen to be there and Simon happened to be in one of them, but because Jesus in charge of this situation made sure that this would happen. 
And so in his humanity, he is doing all the things that he does in his perfect humanity. And in his sovereignty as God, he orchestrates all of these events to make sure that exactly what he needed at the right place and time is where it needs to be. These two boats here, the fish are where they are in some way or another that's not explained by the story, but it certainly is accountable to Jesus being able to do this. And so this showcases his sovereign ability and orchestration of providential events. It also showcases his supernatural ability over all of creation. His supernatural ability over all of creation. As one writer says, Jesus knows, quote, how to fish better than the fishermen do. He knows where the fish are. He knows where to put the boat. He knows when to tell him to, to bring that out and no doubt had some hand in the fish showing up at just the right place at just the right time. Jesus shows his supernatural ability over all creation. I want you to also see Jesus' eagerness to receive sinners. Jesus' eagerness to receive sinners. Everyone, of course, is a sinner. Uh, some of you might not like to admit that, and we never like to admit it in the moment, but we are sinners. We are sinful people. All have turned aside. We've all run away from God and rebelled against him in many ways. He's created us to serve and worship him, and we've not done so. And we've done sins against other people, interpersonal sins, and we have failed, as the Bible instructs us, to honor God the way he deserves or to give him thanks for what he's given us. We all are sinful before him. And yet the problem is many people stubbornly remain in their sins. But Jesus eagerly receives sinners. He wants to show them that they are sinful. He wants to convince them of that. And when they are convinced of that, he is eager to receive them to himself. He doesn't make them pay for their own sins. He doesn't make them just feel bad about it for some extended period of time before they've really proved that they've done enough to make up for it. Jesus welcomes those who recognize their sin before him. He eagerly receives them, even when they lack confidence that he's eager to do that. Peter recognizes his sin, and it's Jesus who moves toward him and says, you can be with me. You can stay with me. I'm not leaving, and you don't have to either. Your sin was an impediment to coming to me, but I have removed the impediment. And the way that he has done that is by nailing our sins to the cross, taking the punishment that we deserved so that those who trust in him can come to God through him. Jesus is eager to receive sinners. Uh, I notice as well in this, and this is the first hint of this really in Luke's gospel, Jesus was intentional to cultivate people beyond himself who would proclaim his message. He was intentional to cultivate people beyond himself who would proclaim his message. Jesus knew not only that he needed to spread the word beyond himself while he was on earth, but that a time would come when he would not be around and he wanted people to spread the gospel to other places in his absence. And so Peter was ultimately the leader of the 12 apostles who would do this. He sought these people out in order to make this happen. And he intentionally did that. He went toward Peter. Peter didn't come and apply for the job. Peter wasn't this ambitious follower of Jesus who said, you know, I need to, uh, I, I, I want to do this. Jesus, do you have any room for me in this whole gospel ministry that you're running? Jesus instead had his eyes straight on Peter and said, I am going to make that guy someone who proclaims my message. And he was very intentional about it. Jesus 
uses people to do this. And even further with this, please notice Jesus' clear-eyed intention to use sinful people. Sinful people to carry out his purposes of preaching the gospel to others. Think about that for a moment. Here is Peter who says, I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. Jesus knows this. Peter knows this. And not only that, but Jesus also knows that Peter is going to be sinful in other ways, pretty big ways down the road, including denying him the night he was betrayed and undermining the gospel in the presence of some Gentiles. He said, I'm not going to eat with you anymore when the Jews came because he was scared. He was afraid of what that would look like. And so he undermined the gospel by implication by saying, you know, you have to be a Jew or not eat these foods or act like them in some ways in order to be saved. So much so that Paul had to oppose him to his face. Peter was a sinful man, to be sure. But that didn't stop Jesus from using him. Jesus intentionally did this. He didn't just come down and say, well, there, maybe there's a few perfect people and I can use them. And then he shows up and, well, that messes up that plan. I guess I'll have to go to plan B and use sinners to spread the message. That's not what he did. He knew coming to earth that he was going to put this message into the hands of sinful people. 2 Corinthians 4 says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, which speaks to our frailty as humans, as mortal, as uh, decaying physically. This is what we all are, all the more so under certain pressures that Paul went through and others in, in gospel ministry. But it wasn't just that they would be frail and weak and human. It was that they would actually even be sinners as well. And so when you think about, you know... I need to preach Jesus, but I'm just not sure I'm in a place where my life is where it needs to be in order to do that. I need to tell people about Jesus, but until I really get everything together, I'm not sure that I'm the kind of person who can proclaim that. Well, certainly work on yourself in the way of going to the scriptures and trying to repent of those things and grow. But understand that Jesus knew all along that it's sinful people who would proclaim the message of the gospel to other sinners who needed to hear the message of the gospel. Sin is never excused but it's certainly the case that Jesus knew that the people who proclaimed him would be sinful. So Jesus sought out sinful people to carry out his purposes of preaching the gospel to others. I want you to notice here also something important. Jesus does not instruct everyone to do exactly what Simon Peter did. He doesn't instruct everyone to do exactly what Simon Peter did. This story is here not because Jesus tells everyone to become a fisher of men, but because he's highlighting that he selected certain people to become fishers of men in this unique capacity as his followers. He told them to follow him. The parallel accounts make that even more clear. He directly says, follow me in Mark and Matthew. Follow me. They were told to actually leave everything and to follow him. And people were told that kind of more generally when he was upon the earth. But not everyone was told in this specific of terms. You are to come after me and your job and your vocation is going to become preaching the gospel to people so that they might believe and come to Jesus. So the apostles, including Simon Peter and James and John and Andrew and the others, were called out by Jesus and selected intentionally to do what Simon did and there is a need for people to do this. You understand this, right? There is a need for people to devote themselves to this vocationally, full-time, leaving behind things, sometimes even moving all the way across the world, leaving everything behind. There is a need for this. There is a value for this. And you should consider whether this is something that you should do. You shouldn't write it off just because you say, I don't know about that. 
There's great value in this. But the call to follow Jesus, which is given to all, is not the exact same thing as the call to follow after or Jesus, just like Simon Peter did. In fact, Jesus didn't even tell everybody in his own day, or most people in his own day, to do that. So then, being a fisher of men for Christ is a great thing. But it's also true that being a uh, Christian fisherman is a great thing, too. So I just want to make sure you understand, uh, it is a noble task, and it's a needed task for people to leave behind everything for gospel ministry, for ministry of the Word of God, to dedicate yourself in full-time vocational ministry in some capacity to the work of the gospel. But it is also noble to follow him in other capacities where you don't meaningfully change your situation in order to serve him and to follow him. So you don't have to feel that you're a lesser Christian in some way if you don't leave your nets behind and follow Jesus and just instantly drop your business and leave behind family and go to some other geographic location and take up a task like this. That is permitted. It can be noble. But that's not what Jesus is telling all of us to do. What he's telling us is people need to be saved. And God uses people to bring that about. And whatever situation you find yourself in, whether you decide I'm going to devote myself to this full time and you can do that, or whether you're doing this in the course of your day-to-day -day life, even as you might work an enormous number of hours at a different kind of job, you understand that people need to be caught, so to speak, by Jesus, caught by the gospel. And you understand that Jesus is worthy of being followed. And this is what you tell people. And this really is the, the final overarching point to note from this text jesus is worthy of being followed while leaving everything behind he is worthy of this now this does not mean that we will leave everything behind literally in order to follow jesus most people won't most people will not suffer the loss physically of all things and uh, the instructions given by the apostles in the new testament Kind of assume that we won't. There are commands to how to relate to your family, your husband, your wife, your parents, your, your children. Uh, even at times mentioning extended family beyond your own spouse or your children, what we would think of as our nuclear family. So there's instructions about this which indicate that, uh, you know, for most people, life was kind of normal in those circumstances, in, at least in that way. So the call to follow Jesus doesn't mean that to follow him, you literally have to uproot your life and cut off contact with everyone you've ever known and never think about them again. That's just not the way that it works. But the question is, are you willing? Are you willing for that to happen if your faithfulness results in losing everything? Are you willing for everyone to turn on you? Are you willing to stand up at great cost to yourself and do what Jesus says. This is the issue. And Jesus is going to challenge multiple people later in this gospel account with tests like that to see where their heart lies. Not because you have to sell everything and give to the poor in order to faithfully follow Jesus, but for one person it showed he wasn't willing to follow Jesus because he wouldn't do that. And so even if we're never required to lose everything, and even if our life is blessed in countless ways. We need to remember that Jesus is always, even on a moment's notice, worthy of giving up everything to follow. Why? Because he meets our only ultimate needs. To have our sins forgiven before God and to have eternal life 
in the kingdom of God. And so we close by considering Jesus' own words and the parables about the kingdom in Matthew 13. And he speaks of his own value, the value of following him and trusting him and being willing to leave everything. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is how valuable Jesus is. This is what it's worth giving up. Are you willing to do that? Whatever the circumstances may be, are you willing to do that? If you're not, you don't understand how great he is. You don't understand your need. But if you do understand your need, then you either have run to Jesus or now is the time to do it. And he will receive you with mercy. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who is sovereign over all, fearsome and holy, different than we are in so many ways, and yet who condescended to us to not only suffer and die for us, but to welcome us into his presence despite our sin. Thank you for making a way for this to happen, and may we love him from the heart because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.